Welcome to RJ Court Watch, a legal podcast by RH Reality Check and hosted by senior legal analysts Jessica Mason Piclo and Monty Gandy. This episode is a little different in that we're not focusing in on a specific legal issue like whether or not corporations can practice religion. Instead, we're taking a peek into what's going on in North Carolina. It's an important state for reproductive rights and justice with a lot of fights going on whose outcomes will have some long-lasting effects. So I guess to that end, it's also a good example of how the law and politics can be two sides of the same coin. This is kind of fun in the sense that not that you and I don't really enjoy digging into the legal issues, but we get to take a step back from some of the case law analysis and talk a little more politics, which I know you and I like to talk politics a little bit. Love politics, especially love politics that is geared towards opening up a reproductive justice lens in the reproductive rights movement. We were really excited to be joined with Suzanne Buckley, who's the executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice North Carolina. And as I mentioned, you know, we sort of focused in on North Carolina because it's a battleground state in a lot of ways. There's obviously some reproductive rights issues that have bubbled up to the surface, but voting rights, public education, clean drinking water, environmental justice, right now North Carolina is on the forefront of all of these issues. And it's a state that has some good, strong progressive roots and also has the opportunity to help lead this part of the region out from the Tea Party madness that has taken hold since 2010. Yes. And one of the great things about North Carolina is the diversity of perspective that is being brought to bear. I mean, you're seeing black people, white people, Asian people, Latino people all coming together to fight for the same things. And I think particularly when looking at black social conservative movements, it's a great way to sort of join black church going folk. Um, and and sort of get them to understand what abortion rights are and to sort of push back on this idea that, you know, black genocide and abortion is slavery and this this effort by a lot of conservatives to sort of tap into that church-going mentality and to convince black people to become anti-choice. So I'm really happy to see things like Moral Mondays and to see people like Reverend Barber really taking a stand for reproductive rights and reproductive justice. Oh, absolutely. One of the reasons I was um, eager to focus on North Carolina is because for that reason, I think it's a state with a lot of lessons for progressives. And one of them being the importance of communities of faith. And in particular in the South, the role of the black churches in the social justice movement and the Moral Monday protest. I'm not at all surprised to see they've caught on elsewhere and that they have really brought this issue to the forefront. And when I think of the idea of re reframing these issues as, as matters of reproductive justice, that just makes a lot of sense because it is much broader than just a question of abortion rights, right? These are impact. These are issues that impact all of these communities, and they may not impact all of these communities equally, but at these various points, we can come together and build coalition that uplifts everyone. And that, I think, is really inspiring coming out of North Carolina. It's a way to use a social justice lens in order to draw parallels and comparisons between voting rights and reproductive rights and all of these other issues so that we can bring North Carolina back to blue so that we can bring North Carolina and make it a a sort of breeding ground for justice issues. Exactly. And I think when we start to... to bring those issues together. When we talk about the connection between reproductive rights and attacks on voting rights, for example, as one 
thread of a larger attack on people's civic engagement and their ability to participate in our social, cultural, and governmental institutions, that it reminds us that we all have kind of a common enemy in this fight. That while our communities may not always be the same and we may have different and sometimes diverging interests, there is a pretty common force of folks who we can rally against. Absolutely. And I think it's just really heartening to see so many people willing to take to the streets to fight for their rights. I mean, it sort of harkens back to the civil rights era, you know, where you have just these massive protests. And what's really disappointing, I find, is that the media tends to ignore these protests. So you had these Moral Mondays protests going on for months and months before they even the media even woke up to bother covering them. But that didn't stop the people from taking to the streets. And one of the things that Suzanne will talk about in this interview is the ways in which North Carolina tried to ram through the quote-unquote motorcycle abortion bill which was a motorcycle safety bill that they then attached all of these anti-choice provisions to and then tried to pass it at the last minute towards the end of the legislative session right before the 4th of July holiday. And despite their efforts in doing that, a lot of people were able to mobilize at the last minute and show up at the Capitol and to push back and say, no, this is not acceptable. And by contrast, we have, you know, 50, 60 Tea Party activists show up and it's all over national media. So I think that there's a real bias. And I, you know, I try not to get into that whole liberal media bias, conservative media bias. But I think North Carolina is an excellent example of many media outlets just being asleep at the switch. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. And I'm really excited for people to listen to this interview. And I'm also really excited for people to hear about what NARAL is doing in terms of partnering with people with groups like Sister Song in order to to do a, a reproductive justice summit. I'm really, really heartened by the fact that reproductive justice seems to be, you know, sweeping the nation for lack of a better term. And I hope we see that more going forward. Absolutely. The Reproductive Justice Summit that NARAL North Carolina will put on this summer is one step in the right direction. And I love, too, the idea that there's a lot of youth uh, involvement and momentum within this movement. I think that's really important, too, because we're seeing that issues like immigration reform and voting rights and and reproductive a- rights and, a- and access issues, you know, the there are young folks who absolutely understand what it's like to live at the margins in the intersections of these points and are informing policy moving forward in a way that I think is really, again, hopeful. And when you work in reproductive rights and justice issues, we don't always get a lot uh, the opportunity to shine a light on a lot of hope, right? We are, we're usually um, more accustomed to talking about defense or the attacks on rights and access and equality. And, and so it's good to see some folks in a really entrenched state taking a, a proactive, forward-looking, hopeful approach too. Absolutely. I I love the fact that we are at a place where we can start being more proactive instead of being reactive all of the time because anti-choicers are nothing if not persistent and they are constantly proactive, thinking outside the box, looking at ways that they can strip women of their rights and strip people of justice. And the fact that we are now starting to take that tack to push back and be proactive is very, very heartening. We are thrilled to introduce Suzanne Buckley, the executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice North Carolina. Suzanne is here to help us talk about North Carolina as a kind of reproductive justice case study. So Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, thanks for having me. 
I would like to start by just taking a little bit of time to talk about the political climate in North Carolina, in part because as a state, it's not necessarily a traditionally conservative state. And I think there's a lot of interesting political dynamics going on, particularly recently, that maybe help explain some of the really extreme attacks on on individual rights that we're seeing in the state. So can you talk with us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, North Carolina has been a historically purple state, and we remain statewide um, a very purple state. So if you look at, you know, Obama winning North Carolina uh, in 2008 and then narrowly losing in 2012, um, North Carolina has traditionally been one of the more progressive states in the South. Uh, Because of redistricting that has happened in the last couple of years, we've seen really extreme um, districts that are either extreme sort of Republican districts and, and a few extreme uh, Democratic districts. So for most of us who are working in the field, the the folks on the ground are not, their values and their views are not necessarily being represented um, by the body in the General Assembly. So there's a lot of um, disconnect, I guess, between uh, what sort of our quote-unquote North Carolina values and what is going on in our General Assembly. So for the first time um, in certainly my lifetime, and I'm from here, we have um, an anti-choice governor, anti-choice majority on our Supreme Court, and an anti-choice supermajority uh, in the General Assembly. So this is um, an unprecedented time uh, for folks working in reproductive rights and health and just sort of anyone who is socially justice-minded, this is the first time that we have been in such an extreme minority. And I think that is why we are seeing, um, you know, from the work that I've done, when I started working in this field about 10 years ago, the bills that were introduced, the mandatory ultrasound bills, the bias counseling bills, all of those bills had been introduced every single year for the last 10 years. They had just never gone anywhere. Uh, so we are seeing sort of, uh, you know, a wish list of the folks who have been in the minority and who have been working on these issues um, finally being able to push legislation. And, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing an outpouring of, you know, voting, voter suppression, um, not expanding Medicaid, I and mean, just sort of like every sort of neoconservative uh, dream is coming to fruition right now in North Carolina. So one of the more shocking efforts to ram anti-choice provisions through North Carolina was the sort of Hail Mary passage of SB 353, which was a motorcycle safety bill, but then was amended to add multiple anti-choice restrictions, including an insurance coverage for abortion ban, a sex-selective abortion ban, a ban on telemedicine, among other things. Uh, And listeners can review the restrictions that were included in that bill by checking out our new interactive search tool, RHRC Data, and the URL for that is data.rhrealitycheck.org. But if you could explain a little bit about how it is a bill about motorcycle safety turned into one of the more stringent anti-choice laws that were passed last year and how it is, you know, helmet safety has anything to do with pregnancy or abortion or reproductive rights, maybe sort of explain what it is that the North Carolina um, anti-choice forces were thinking. If I knew that, um, <laughs> it would be a lot easier. Um, I think uh, we we saw sort of versions of some of this legislation throughout our session. So um, we had, you know, there had been hearings on pieces of it um, that had either been defeated or had gone through one of the two chambers. But what we saw in about a 
15 to 20 day period was the sort of the gutting of two bills. The first one was a um, anti-Sharia law bill, which is similarly similarly perplexing as to how those two things are related. Um, and then a slightly less bad version that ended up in this motorcycle safety bill. And and this is, you know, in politics in general and in policy making, you know, there are a lot of procedural things that happen in, in ways that folks try to use parliamentary procedure and other types of um, civil procedure to allow bills to pass quickly and, you know, trying to pass them sort of um, without a lot of public attention. And so one of the things that folks had tried to do, and it was wrapped up in a larger debates that were going around on between the majority around tax reform and, you know, a lot of other issues was take a bill that, uh, that to this day has nothing to do um, with reproductive health and safety and gut it and insert a bunch of different provisions that some of which hadn't had any hearing at all and most of which hadn't really been thoroughly discussed or there hadn't been a lot of opportunity for amendment. And because of the way they did this on a holiday weekend, you know, I think the thought was we'll just sort of slip this in pass it really quickly, everybody will go home for the break and nobody will notice um, until it's all over. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, we were able to do, you know, working with a lot of our partners is get, you know, 600 folks to show up overnight on July 3rd, I believe, at the General Assembly to stand up and say, you know, you can, we're watching, we're here, nice try, you know, but we're going to notice this and we're going to remember it. Um, and I think they... It was interesting because they have the votes. Um, so just in terms of if you're a political junkie and are interested in thinking about like why do it this way, um, it was very interesting to see, you know, why not have full hearings and full disclosures if you have the votes anyway, right? Like why go through all of this process and procedure to try to kind of um, push things through. And I think we're still trying to answer that question. Um, but I think the more, you know, exposure and more discussion that goes on around this legislation, um, and this new law, the more extreme it sounds and the, and the harder it is to continue to say this is about women's health and safety. Right. And so are there challenges that, um, you are expecting to that law? Uh, at this point, the, the, the biggest piece of it, um, that is, sort of new for North Carolina, the um, bans on abortion care coverage and the health exchange and a lot of the um, so-called conscious clause refusals, those are already playing out um, in the courts and in other areas. And, and the biggest piece is that they're, they've given the authority to our um, health department, our Department of Health and Human Services, to create new trap laws. Um, that apply to clinics, and, and that process is going on right now. The, those rules haven't come out yet, so we're sort of in the process of waiting to see what those rules are before we are able to really mount any kind of challenge. Is there a sense that this law is going to hurt certain groups of women more so than others, for example, low-income women, minority women, rural, or is it just sort of, you know, this law is bad for almost everyone and we're just trying to do what we can to, to pare it back? Uh, sort of both. I mean, this what right now, um, 90% of counties in North Carolina have no local women's health center that provides abortion care. So the landscape currently is not great. So we're deviating, you know, so we're, we're looking to strict access even further. And, you know, it's likely that the 
the clinics that there's one clinic um, in a rural part of our state, and then there's a clinic in the mountains that recently uh, announced that they're going to be closing. So we're kind of already operating in a landscape that is, while not as egregious as Texas is moving towards that, where folks are traveling, you know, if they are able to at all, you know, hours um, to get to a clinic, then you layer, you know, mandatory waiting periods on top of that. Um, you know, all of every travel regulation um, that we've seen or that has been discussed would definitely have a disparate impact on rural women, low-income women, you know, women of color. I mean, it's just sort of that that group of folks and the people that lie at the intersection of those are continuing to get hit by all of these different laws. I want to pick up on this um, point because, you know, Suzanne, you mentioned it and Amani, you really drew it out as well, that the reproductive rights restrictions and uh, particularly the impact of them falling heaviest on low-income women, rural women, women of color in the state. And then when you add on top of that efforts by conservatives to push back against expanding Medicaid and attacks on North Carolina's really historically great public education system. It becomes clear why it's a battleground state. But thankfully, you folks at NARAL Pro-Choice North Carolina have a program that you're working on to help push back against some of this. And I'm hoping you can talk about that a little bit, Suzanne, and, and, and fill us with a little bit of hope. Sure. Well, first, I will say that you know, NARAL is historically and continues to be very much a reproductive rights organization. Um, and what a lot of folks, and I in particular noticed coming out of the amazing momentum around the Moral Monday movement and working with uh, ally organizations, it's how, how intersectional these, you know, laws really are and how intersectional the impact is and, and really trying to think about how do we create a space to have some of those conversations both among social justice organizations and with young people who are so entrenched in the movement and doing amazing work and trying to create a a space for conversations around that and a space where we can really start to look at how do we apply reproductive justice lens to immigration rights in our state, to voting rights in our state, to reproductive rights in our state. Um, So we have partnered with Sister Song, um, El Pueblo, which is a local organization based in Raleigh, and Youth Empowered Solutions, which is also a local organization based in Raleigh that works with teens to host a reproductive justice summit this summer in June that really just sort of starts to have these conversations and do some both relationship building and skills building to kind of frame some of these issues in a way that our organization hasn't done historically, um, but that some of the partner organizations that we're working with and bringing to the table have done um, wonderfully and really starting to, you know, build intentionally a space for that to happen. This summit is is great. If if you can talk about the lack of transparency that you mentioned and how maybe that helped spur some of this coalition building around these issues, because I think the Moral Monday movement is really inspirational and a great way for us to remember that a lot of advances in reproductive rights came through this broader social justice framework originally. And maybe what's going on in North Carolina is a little bit of a return to that. the things that we really that was really inspiring about the the space that was created by the North Carolina NAACP and the Moral Monday movement 
was not just sort of what was going on on the stage with the featured speakers, but what was going on in the crowds with folks who were coming to the General Assembly who were motivated um, by lots of different things that were going on. And it wasn't, you know, today is going to be Women's Health Day. It was a, a time and a space for folks to talk about how all kinds of different issues were impacting them. And I think that it was really, um, you know, for me, really inspiring to see young people engage in that conversation and to realize that there isn't really, for a lot of them, a space, especially for folks who are in rural areas of our state or who are doing a lot of their organizing online, a space where they can come and learn from each other more than learning from us. Um, but also, you know, what can we add to help help them understand some of the impacts around this legislation and sort of let them know what's going on from a rights perspectives, but also nurture that exploration of how does this affect me and my community? Um, what are other issues that no one's talking about because they've gotten sort of um, sublimated with everything that's been going on this summer and or last summer and in the last you know year? It's almost impossible for some things not to get lost or the overwhelming impact of it all to just seem like, well, there's nothing I can do because it's all so big. Um, to, so to really kind of break it down uh, at a local level and, and look at what can, you know, what can we start to build in our communities that will help us take back our state. If folks are interested in getting involved in North Carolina, what's the best and easiest way for them to do so? Sure. Our website is prochoicenc.org, and they can sign up for updates and contact us, volunteer information. Um, and we would love to have anyone in North Carolina or otherwise who's interested in engaging in the work we're doing. Suzanne, thank you so much for taking time away from your busy schedule to talk about all the things going on in North Carolina and about your upcoming Reproductive Justice Summit. We're really looking forward to hearing more about it. And there's a lot of important battles going on in your state, and we're glad that you guys are there pushing back and hopefully pushing forward soon, too. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to RJ Courtwatch, a legal podcast produced by RH Reality Check. Tune in for future episodes where we discuss buffer zones, clinic access, and the First Amendment, the close of the Supreme Court term, and what the undue burden standard means in an age of clinic closures. For even more coverage, be sure to visit us at www.rhrealitycheck.org.